0: During our summer series on knowing God, we've been looking at knowing God better, who the Father is, who God the Father is, how God the Father loves and places His Son Jesus at the center of everything, including at the center of our lives. He's, we've talked about how Jesus, God's Son, wants to reveal God the Father to us, and at the pleasure He finds in His His eternal relationship with God the Father. God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have been with each other for eternity past. They've been in community with each other in a beautiful, infinite, complete sense. In fact, such a complete sense of community together forever that they're one. They're one God. All three of them. That means our God is fundamentally relational. And he wants us, even though we're flawed people, even though he's a holy God, he wants us to be in a relationship with him, to be a part of that sense of community that God feels so strongly. That, that sounds like something miraculous, to think that flawed people could be in unity and united with a holy God. A rebellious creation saved so that we can have a relationship with him. But it is possible. And it's something that God truly delights to make possible. So I want to look at this more closely this morning. This idea that God feels great joy in saving us as his creation. To look at the miracle of salvation by which we're united with, in a loving relationship with God I want to turn to a passage that we were in back the last time I preached in June. The last time we preached in June, I preached about Jesus wanting to be the center of everything and God wanting to make Jesus the center, not just of everything in this universe, but of our very lives. And I looked at Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to pick up where I left off in Ephesians this morning. So I'm going to be turning to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be starting at verse 15, and I'm going to be reading to the end of chapter 1 to begin with in the English Standard Version. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's That's our series. That's the theme we're talking about, the the knowledge of God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body that's us the fullness of him who fills all in all. This whole passage is about Paul's passion for his readers to know the God who delights to save people on this planet. When Paul prays for his readers to have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, he's talking about a level of understanding that's impossible without God's help. The Greek word the Paul uses for that word knowledge is not the usual word that's used in the New Testament. The usual word is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis is the Greek word that's typically used for knowledge. But this word is epignosis, which is often used by Christian writers to refer to knowledge of a divine truth. Or also it's used to describe an intimate acquaintance with God. That's something that's different than just simple knowledge or gnosis. The prefix epi means over, above, in addition to. And so epinosis speaks of a knowledge of God that's over and above what's naturally possible without the Holy Spirit's help. At the age of 14... um, Shortly after we had moved to Winnipeg, I started attending a church on the west side of Winnipeg where the pastor had been a former CFL player. And uh, he was a great guy, great guy for a young 14-year-old to have as a pastor. And I, th- I had a fair knowledge of football at 14. I had a gnosis A knowledge of football. I I watched games on TV. I I checked stats in the in the paper. In those days, there was no internet. I was I checked the free press for the stats after a game. Uh, I'd talk to my friends about football. I had a knowledge of football. But then I, I remember the very first church picnic, where our pastor took a football in his hands to play us a game of football, and I remember receiving a pass from him. And I suddenly had an epinosis of football. (laughs) An intimate acquaintance. I thought I'd broken a rib. It bounced right off my chest. I I thought, what is that? And it didn't even look like he was trying. He actually wasn't. He was going easy on us. But that was a, a much more intimate acquaintance with football. Paul prays that his readers will know and experience intimately Three things about God. The hope of his calling, his inheritance, and his power. I don't want to examine all three of these things closely this morning. I just want to clarify each of them briefly. First of all, the hope of his calling. Paul wanted his readers to know... The hope that comes from being called by God and and the hope that that should inspire in them when the living God calls you. There's a verse in Galatians that says, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. That should inspire us that God has taken notice of us to call us. The hope that the New Testament talks about, when it uses this word, is not a subjective, uncertain hope. You know, like, like I hope the Blue Bombers win the Grey Cup this season. That's a little uncertain, but it's a concrete, solid hope that he wants us to have. Elsewhere in the Bible it says, this hope we have as an anchor to the soul, a hope both sure And steadfast. God wants us to have a hope that comes from being called to follow him. And knowing that he's a part of our lives and he's leading us. And we can be sure that hope will be a steadfast anchor to our souls. No matter what storms you're facing in life. No matter what troubles are going on for you. God wants you to have a hope that's like an anchor. No matter how big those waves are. You are secure because of your hope in God that's the kind of hope he's talking about and then he talks about the inheritance that Paul Paul writes about this inheritance he's not talking about our inheritance notice that he says his inheritance God's inheritance this is a focus on the church being God's people and God's possession in whom God wants to reveal his glory notice he talks when he says that it refers to the church at the end of chapter one, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. He wants the church to be to be where he reveals his glory. Theologian theologian F. F. Bruce wrote when he was commenting on this idea of the riches of his of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. F. F. Bruce writes, "We can scarcely realize what it must mean to God." to see his purpose complete, to see his creatures of his hand, sinners redeemed by grace, reflecting his glory. That excites God. When his glory is revealed in us as fallen creation, when we choose to turn to him and find our delight in him rather than in this world, he's glorified and he's delighted. That's what happens when we become God's people and God's own possession. And God wants us to have a deeper understanding of how thrilled he is that you're a part of his people. He's thrilled that you are in his family, you personally. Don't doubt that. That's what Paul is trying to get at here. But Paul also prayed that his readers would know God to be an immeasurably powerful God. Paul prayed that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And Paul went on to write that God the Father seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now, the Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee before he became a Christian. And as a Pharisee, I don't think we can overestimate how well Pharisees knew the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew it well. They had much of it memorized. And I had an Old Testament professor in college who, and I saw them do this once at lunchtime, because they would join us sometimes at the student body at lunch. And they these two professors would would test each other by saying the first two or three words of a verse. And the other one would have to tell them where it was. And it was anywhere in the Old Testament. And they, ha- I don't remember how long it took them to stump each other. Like, what's up with that? And the Pharisees knew the word God, word of God even better than that. In terms of familiarity and memorization. And so if I'm reminded of a particular verse in the Old Testament when I read this this phrase that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, if I'm reminded of an Old Testament verse, I'm pretty sure Paul would have been reminded of that verse. And it's the verse, Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. That's a great verse to memorize, folks. So when you're in a tight spot, when you're in trouble, when things aren't going well, just remind yourself, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over this situation. His kingdom rules over my life. His kingdom rules over everything in this world. Nothing is beyond his jurisdiction. So when Paul says that Jesus was, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, I think Paul was remembering Psalm 103.19, his kingdom rules over all. And in other words, Paul, in this letter to the Ephesians, is attributing to Jesus what King David attributed to Almighty God. This verse itself is an indicator that Paul saw Jesus as God. He's referring to Jesus and giving him an attribute that David attributed to God the Father. And that's why Paul could write that God the Father made Jesus to be head over all things. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all things. God the Father is seated in heaven, Jesus in heaven in a place of honor. And strength and above all other authority, with greater power and dominion than any other authority he rules over all that 's who Jesus is he 's God almighty jesus image or I mean the world 's image of Jesus as as gentle and meek, well, it may have its place. Jesus has a gentle side, but this meek and mild Jesus is not who Paul is describing here. He's des- describing a powerful, almighty God. What are you facing right now? What are you facing in which you need Jesus to be head over all things? You need him to rule over all in your life. There are situations in my life where I pray for, a hundred and, for, for Psalm 103, 19 to be applied again and again. And if you've not done so already, if you've not asked Jesus to be ruling in your life and to be king almighty in your life, I, I encourage you to invite him to be today because he loves you and he wants to help you. He wants to rule in your life so that he can help your life have a, have a purpose that has eternal significance but he won't force that authority on us we have to invite him to have authority in our lives yeah he may when when you do when you invite almighty god the creator of the universe you can be sure he will be delighted to welcome you into his family well paul has concluded his prayer on inviting his readers, to know God more fully. And now we're going to read on and see why it's so, so important. Because if God didn't send this Jesus Paul has just described, we would be in serious trouble. Let's find out why. I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter 2. And you were dead... In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The fact is, before we met Jesus, before any of us knew Jesus, we were dead in our sins spiritually dead. And that's because every one of us was born a sinner. We've inherited a sinful nature from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who originally sinned against God and passed that sinful nature on to each generation. And as sinners, that separates us. That sin separates us from God. And we will not be able to know God or have a relationship with God unless that sin is dealt with. A key phrase in Paul's description is, among whom we all once lived. All of us once lived as one of the disobedient among the disobedient. And I find this a fascinating statement coming from someone like the Apostle Paul. Because he was a Pharisee, writing to non-Jewish readers I mean, it was a mixed readership. There were Jewish readers as well. But there's Gentiles reading this in this church. And for, Pharisee, for, for a Pharisee to lump himself together with non-Jewish readers was astounding. Paul described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's how Paul once saw himself before he knew Jesus. And yet here he's lumping himself together with non-Jewish readers saying, I was actually once dead in my sins among the sons of disobedience. That that, that was me. He's no longer calling himself blameless. He's calling himself dead, spiritually dead. This is a classic example of why being a good person will not get a person saved. If Paul couldn't say, hey, I've lived a good life, that should be good enough. If Paul couldn't say that, then how, how could we? Paul had lived an astoundingly righteous life, aside from all the murdering of Christians he had done. This reveals a a commonly believed lie that if we live good lives and do good deeds and follow all the rules in our external behavior, then God will will bless us. But the gospel is the reverse of this. The good news of Jesus is the absolute reverse of that. The gospel says it's because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross that God accepts me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done not because of anything I could do to make up for all the wrong things I've done. I can only live a life that's pleasing to God by depending on Him for His strength and living by His Holy Spirit in me. People today will often say, I'm not very religious, but I'm a good person. That's what matters. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I I can't remember how many times I've heard someone say that. Uh, I'm a pretty good person, so what's the problem? Why wouldn't God accept me? Well, Timothy Keller has a very helpful illustration about this. Let me read this to you. Imagine a woman, a poor widow with an only son. She teaches him how she wants him to live. To always tell the truth, to work hard, and to help the poor. She makes very little money, but with her meager savings, she is able to put him through college. Imagine that when he graduates, he hardly ever speaks to her again. He occasionally sends a Christmas card, but he doesn't visit her. He won't answer her phone calls. He won't respond to her letters. He doesn't speak to her. But he lives just like she taught him, honestly, industriously, and charitably. Would we say that this was acceptable? Of course not. Wouldn't we say that by living a good life but neglecting the relationship with the one whom he owed everything was doing something condemnable? In the same way, if God created us and we owe him everything, And we do not live for Him, but we live a good life. That is not enough. God wants us depending on Him. God wants us in a relationship with Him, trusting Him to be our Savior, not ourselves. The main reason it's not good enough is because we've all failed God in ways that need to be forgiven. And we can't just forgive ourselves. God needs to forgive us. The gospel is a two-pronged message that first says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. But then quickly follows with, I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope possible. That's the gospel. I remember when I was 19 years old, I went to England that was in 1983 the summer of 83 i went to do some street evangelism in london england and i was there for the summer and as we were doing street evangelism you know we'd sometimes have time to do other things and one of the things we did was on a sunday morning we went to to church where john stott was preaching john stott the great theologian he's passed away now but he He is an amazing writer and theologian. I felt honored to hear him preach. And is there a sermon you can remember the outline of from 1983? I remember the outline of this sermon. I remember a sermon outline from 1983. I don't know if you'll remember the sermon outline from today, tomorrow. But in 1983, I heard John Stott preach on two vital truths. That we deserve to be crucified by a holy God and that we have eternal worth to a loving God. That's the gospel. That's all he preached on. We must be prepared to acknowledge our spiritual deadness without Jesus to recognize how good the good news is that Jesus came to proclaim. So let's read that good news. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship, created in grace Jesus for good works, which God pre- prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God... Wouldn't it be wonderful if those words just echoed around the world? But God made all the difference. Made it possible for a sinful race to have a relationship with God. There we were, spiritually dead in a sinful state. Unable to help ourselves, but God intervened. This is what I mentioned at the beginning when I said God takes such delight in saving us. God takes such delight in saying, but God, but I've got something I'm going to do for you. That's his attitude. This is the salvation Jesus offers to a human race that's separated from God by sin. And it's worth pointing the spotlight at the contrast that Paul is trying to create here. Earlier, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul talked about being dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, and he described a mountain of barriers, just a mountain, an unclimbable mountain of barriers between us and God. Trespasses, sins, stuck on the course of this world, stuck under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, that Satan Pursuing the passions of our flesh, pursuing the desires of the body and the mind, and deserving God's holy wrath. That's the mountain that's between us and God. Then we hear these wonderful words as we stare at this mountain that we can't do anything about. But God, but God, it's kind of like Paul is loading up a cannon. He's loading up a canon with glowing descriptions now of God, of him being rich in mercy, of his great love, his great love with which he loved us. He wants to repeat that word and the grace by which you've been saved. He's just loading up this canon. He builds up the suspense of this list until he then fires off how God made us alive together with Christ we were dead, and now we're alive. That's what God's doing here. He's raised us up with Christ. He's seated us, Christ, in heavenly places. The cannon is firing at that mountain. It's like he fires that cannon of mercy and love and grace with those action verbs of being made alive and being raised up and being seated With Christ in heavenly places, and He blows that mountain of barriers between us and God to smithereens. And we have access to God. Amen. The deadness of our sins is shattered as we're made alive with Jesus. But the trouble with some of us Christians, me included, so we sometimes live as if that mountain of barriers is still in the way of us having a relationship with God. I call it, can I call it this? I call it a pile of poo. <laughs> it's no longer a mountain. The mountain has been blown to smithereens. All you've got now is a mountain, uh, a pile of poo. And sometimes we leave it in our front yard. And God wants to help us clean that up. He says when we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He helps us. The mountain is gone. There's nothing between us and God. We're saved by grace. But sometimes, even though we're saved by grace, we live as though we think God no longer loves us. Because we're struggling with some sin. We're struggling with something that that seems persistent. We're struggling with something that just doesn't go away. And we suddenly think God can't love us. Even though the mountain is gone. Even though we have access to God. And God has expressed his love in no uncertain terms. And he's with us. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. So why would we doubt it? But we do. As we struggle with sins. We beat ourselves up and withdraw from God in condemnation rather than turning to him, rather than turning to the loving and merciful and gracious God who's actually removed our sin and he wants to help us to not turn back to it. And he will help us. What we need to realize is all three of those action verbs of being made alive and being raised up and being seated with God in heavenly places, they have something in common. The way Paul puts them into words here, they all have something in common. They're all experiences we share together with Jesus. We don't have to do them alone. He makes us alive with Christ. He raises us up with Christ. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Jesus has already been made alive. Jesus has already been raised up and seated in heavenly places. So when we follow and live for Jesus when we are we're united with him. We're united with Christ. And we automatically share in these powerful, transformative experiences with Jesus. So if you're a Christ follower, don't let your failings come between you and God. The mountain has been blown to smithereens. Don't let your insecurities get between you and God. Don't let the trials of this life between you and God. The fact is, these actions, these verbs, these action words that Paul is describing express how much God genuinely likes us. Not just loves us because he's a loving God, but he likes us. He likes you And then Paul adds that he also wants to reveal the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses the same word, the same Greek word, hyperbalo, as he did when he described, when he prayed, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. So you've got the immeasurable greatness of God's power, the immeasurable riches of God's grace, both using this word hyperbalo. It's a great word, hyperbalo. I have to admit, as I prepared this sermon, I've already mentioned, I got the feeling that Paul was getting so excited about these truths that he was rattling off one truth after another about who we were and who we are. And he was getting excited. And, And I want you to imagine it this way, okay? I want you to imagine it this way. I want you to imagine, this is my mega, hyper grace cannon. Say that with me. Mega, hyper grace cannon. That's what this is. Now, I plan to use this to demolish and destroy the mountains of deceit. Because that's what they are. It's deceit that where the devil tries to put lies in our head. That our sins are separating us from God. Jesus has taken away our sins. When he sees you, he sees you as righteous. Because he sees Christ in you. You're united with Christ. And you share the experiences of Christ being raised up, seated in heavenly places. That's what he sees when he sees you. So, we're going to destroy those mountains of lies that say that we are separated from God, that God can't love me, or that God doesn't accept me, or that God can't actually make me alive when I'm struggling with some sin in my life. Those are lies. So I'm going to load up this hyperbalow grace canon with the gospel truths. OK? So, gospel truths like God is rich in mercy. Gospel truths like he has great love for me. Gospel truths that he loves me with a great love with which he loved us on the cross. Showing us on the cross how much he loved us. Truths like, like by grace we've been saved. Truths like I'm fully accepted as the beloved of God. Those are gospel truths. There's so many more. I've just loaded up my grace cannon. Now, I'm going to fire this grace cannon. And Paul has given us a trigger. I want you to use this trigger in your everyday life. These triggers are the action words of Ephesians chapter 2. The action words are that he made us alive together with Christ. The actions are, he's raised us up. The actions are, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Did you hear that? You've been made alive. You've been raised up. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. The mountain has been blown to smithereens. Do you get it? It's gone. Those truths are gone, and it challenges the doubts of my own heart that God's immeasurable hyperbalo power is matched by his immeasurable hyperbalo favor. Favor. You're his beloved. You should know his favor because that's what he feels toward you. He has power to deliver you from sin and he has favor to accept you even when you struggle with sin. Isn't that good news? That's the gospel. And that is salvation. That's, the, that's how... See, we're excited. God's excited about doing that, about providing that salvation. But then, in verses 8 and 9, then Paul gives us as clear a description of the gospel as you'll find anywhere else in the New Testament. Verses 8 and 9 say this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the gospel. Right there. That's the gospel. The first word for could just as easily and accurately have been translated because. Go to the, let's go to the next slide where it says, because being made alive, raised up, and seated in heavenly places are only possible for flawed human beings like us because it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not by our own doing, it's a gift of God. That's why, these, that's why all these action words are possible because, because of what God has done, what Christ has done, because he's been raised up. He's been, he's been made alive and seated in heavenly places and so are we because we're united with Christ when we get saved, when we give our life to him, when we become a follower of Jesus. Something available because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God for all eternity. Is that something that's worth reminding ourselves of again and again and again? The devil will try to throw lies into your life like you're not good enough. Oh, you failed again. Oh, there you go. Look at that pile in your front yard. Jesus isn't looking at that. He's looking looking at a spotless bride. He's looking at righteousness that's in us because we're united with Christ. Finally, Paul ends this powerful gospel paragraph with one more reminder. As God's new creations, living our new lives in Christ, we are created to do good works which God has prepared ahead of time for us to accomplish. The mercy and love and grace that we've received are meant to be shared, are meant to go on to others. They're meant to be passed on. Paul has made it clear that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Not by good works, but to do good works. That's what we're saved for. I have a suggestion the first good works that 10 of you in this room could do. Please bring me back my darts after the service. (laughs) That would be a good work. Thank you. Our salvation is not meant to be a work of God that comes to an end in our own heart, like our own heart was a cul-de-sac. But the work of grace that God does in our heart is meant to be like something that flows through us to others. God is eager to save. And that means he's eager to save more than just us in this room. He's eager to save others. And he wants us to be eager to see people saved. Right. If we get excited about the gospel here, let's not let that excitement wane when we get into the pressures of a Monday. Let's stay excited about the gospel and let's be eager to see other people saved. So I want to close by asking two questions. Two questions. Who in your life does God want to touch with the salvation God has already given you? And two, what are the good works God has prepared for you to walk in this summer among the people God has put in your life? And I want to actually have a, a very short listening prayer time, just a, maybe just a minute or two, of where we just wait on the Lord and listen regarding these two questions. Who in your life does God want to touch with the salvation that God's already given you, but he wants you to share with someone else? And what are the good works that he's prepared for you to walk in this summer, not just in the distant future, among people God has put in your life? Those are, that's something just... If God doesn't bring anyone to mind or anything to mind, hey, no pressure, right? But if God does bring someone to mind, that's wonderful because that's someone you can be eager to see saved. And you can do whatever good work God may have prepared ahead of time for you to do. Summertime's a great time to socially connect with people. It's a great time to get together with folks who you don't normally have time for. Make time to have a barbecue or to go out for coffee or to have lunch with someone. And uh, share the gospel with them. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, if you've never experienced that grace and that love that God delights to share with us, then don't miss out. Come on and talk to me after the service. Or talk to Greg after the service. Just come and talk to us at the end.